This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. If you want to see some of the more extreme examples of liberally-minded people bending themselves into pretzels to show that they're woke, you could tune into Fox News, which has a particular dedication to that theme. Or if you want a more comedic version of it, you could see The Thanksgiving Play, which opens on Broadway this week and has already been produced around the country. It's a play about the making of a play. The four performers struggle to devise a Thanksgiving play that is somehow respectful of Native peoples and historically accurate, but they also don't want to make the audience feel terrible about American history. And they want to make the performers themselves feel included in the process of writing it. If that sounds like a train wreck, well, that's what happens. The playwright is Larissa Fasthorse, and she belongs to the Sichangu Lakota Nation, and she's the first Native American woman with a play produced on Broadway. I wanted to talk to Larissa not only because of the humor and the sharp wit and the sort of structural tightness that you find in her work, but also because she has become, just by dint of her identity, kind of a foremost voice about Native presence in the arts and how our artistic culture feeds into and is a consequence of the larger culture in a way that almost no one else working in America is today. That's The New Yorker's Vincent Cunningham. He spoke the other day with Larissa Fasthorse. I um, grew up in South Dakota, where my Lakota people are from. But I was adopted at a young age and opened adoption to a white family who had worked on the reservation for a long time, the reservation that I'm from. I was always raised very aware of my Lakota identity and my Lakota culture, Mm -hmm. and they brought a lot of mentors into my life and elders um, to help me stay connected in that way. But at the same time, I was growing up in a very white culture, and um, my first career was in classical ballet, so it doesn't really get much whiter than that. (laughs) I don't know, maybe opera? I'm not sure. Uh, There's a list, but ballet is on the top. They're way up there, yeah. Yeah, 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 They're always in the top five. (laughs) So, um, you know, at the time, when I was younger, it was very painful, right, to be separated um, from a lot of things I felt like I couldn't partake in because I wasn't raised on the reservation or I'd been away from my Lakota family so long. Um, And that was very hard. But now, you know, I really recognize it as my superpower that I can take Lakota culture and experiences and contemporary indigenous experiences and translate them into white 
for white audiences, which unfortunately are the majority of audiences still in American theater. Yeah. So I, I, I do want to go back to this thing about ballet because um, it does seem like this really important part of your life that you were mm. a, a professional ballet dancer. Mm. And how much did your training as a dancer, how much does that sort of stay with you? Is that, is that a part of your approach as a writer? Does mm. it, do you think about that often when you're working? Oh, yes. My ballet background is hugely influential in my work as a playwright. Um, first off, just in the work ethic, um, ballet dancers are expected to be shown something once, and mm. then you work on it on your own, and you come back, and you've got it down. Like, people aren't going to sit there and spend a lot of time <laughs> right. spoon-feeding things or teaching you one thing at a time. You're, you're expected to learn it. You're expected to do your own training at night after six hours of classes and rehearsal. You're, you know, you're expected to do a lot on your own, and that kind of work ethic um, certainly has helped me as a playwright where you spend, you know, months sometimes alone in your home writing, and you could miss that deadline. No one's going to yell at you. <laughs> 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 um, but also, you can really see it in my writing um, there's a lot of movement-based um, acting, I, I guess, uh, you know, text-free scenes in my work. Mm -hmm. uh, the Thanksgiving play is a perfect example. There's several scenes that have little to no text that are movement-based, and they are moving the story forward, and they're essential to the story, but without using text or very little text and a lot of um, movement and gesture. And then I'd say finally also, you know, as far as my process, I was um, trained primarily in the George Balanchine tradition. Mm -hmm. And his way of working with dancers and his choreography was to change it all the time, mm -hmm. depending on who he is working with. So mm -hmm. when I'm in the room with actors like I have been here in New York for the past couple months, I'm constantly adapting my work to that group of people. So it highlights their strengths and is perfect for them. So my work is always changing when I'm in the room. So the Thanksgiving play, it's about for people who, um, let's say, present as white, um, trying to put on a play about the first Thanksgiving and sort of trying and, I think, often failing to acknowledge this Native presence that they um, are somehow trying to highlight. Um, and I was thinking a lot about, let's say, what's happening in Florida, about, like, how we educate our children about um, topics that might make them feel, whatever, guilty or upset. How much of today's dramas over education mm -hmm. and race and history were you thinking about with this new production? Oh, a lot. Um, yeah, I definitely have updated a lot for the times. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Florida. The The laws state if, if something causes, I think it's um, guilt, discomfort, or anguish based right. on your race. It can't be taught in a school. And you will <laughs> right. you will hear, or well, you'll see those words in the play if you come to it. Um, I wanted to make sure that these people, because they are, I call performative wokeness. You know, they, these are white folks, liberal folks, trying really hard to do everything right and, yeah. as you said, getting everything wrong. Um, and I wanted to make sure that they're people of today and not someone who can look at, you know, I don't want people to be able to say, oh, well, since 2020, we've changed. So this isn't me. Um, right. Because it definitely still is. Right. But interestingly, my um, one of my first writing mentors was the great Maritamita, who is a Maori writer and filmmaker from New Zealand. Um, and she said to me at my very first screenplay that I wrote before I was writing plays, she said, Larissa, you can be an artist or you can be an educator. Mm -hmm. If you try to be both, you'll do one of them badly. So you have to pick one. And I chose artist. And she said, there's certainly art that educates and there's education that's artistic. But you have to choose which one you are and stay true to that. 
I mean, I, I, I imagine that that tension is exacerbated by the expectations of the audience, right? I mean, mm-hmm. just the way the arts happen in America, usually the audiences are white. Right. And they often, I think, I, I, I think it's fair to say some pe- people come to the theater on some level hoping to have some sort of educational experience as mm-hmm. opposed to art. So it's like, what I love about your play is that it's like, no, you're just going to laugh and it's going to feel weird. And um, is that something that you like to play with or is it something that feels like a hurdle? Um, no, absolutely. No, I love that. <laughs> Playwright Larissa Fasthorse talking with The New Yorker's Vincent Cunningham. More in a moment. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan. A hiking plan. A music plan. A sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, what we do here changes lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. One thing I love about this play, there's a character named Alicia. And she's played by Darcy Carton, very, uh, a very funny, wonderful performer. And she's hired on the um, assumption that she is a Native person. Right. And I thought about this because a lot of the literature that I was raised on, black literature, um, passing is a big theme. Um, what, is, what, is, what does passing mean to you on stage mm. and off? Um, you know, I'm white passing in many ways. And yet at the same time, before I was writing, when I was acting for a while, mm-hmm. and the casting director said to me, we can tell you're not completely white, and that's a problem. And <laughs> I was like, wow. Well, and I was like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing I can do about that. Is that America's subtitle? Is that yeah. perhaps the whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that should be yeah. a little subtitle underneath. United States of America. We can tell you're not white. That's a problem. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was— um, you know, so I'm, but I am very light skinned, and um, again, it was something that was sometimes painful because colorism, you know, is a thing in our communities, and it was sometimes painful that I was so light and white passing growing up with um, a lot of, you know, full blood. I mean, my father is full blood, and they're much darker. My biological father, um, 
And so I had some pain over that growing up. And especially because then I was raised away from it. It's like, who are you, you know, showing up again? Um, however, then on the other side, on the, on the white side, which is like American theater, um, I am quite sure that I get into rooms that um, not white passing Native people would not get into. Yeah. It's funny. The other thing about Alicia is that she's brought in, you know, specifically and like yep. not just to be an actorly presence, but it's like, we're going to use her expertise. And we're going to oh, like, yeah. what do you have to say? Please tell us, you mm-hmm. know. Um, the wisdom. <laughs> I would imagine that that has some corollary to your experience. Oh, it's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, I just can't imagine what it would be like to just, like for a white male playwright, like they just walk into a theater and they're just a playwright and they don't do anything else. <laughs> like I can't imagine what that's like. I've never done it. Because, you know, I mean, I'm so fortunate with the queer I've had but I'm also the first one in 90% of the places I've worked. Like the first one in the theater, first one in, you know, it just goes on every step. I've got six shows this year, and it's like yeah. most of them I'm the first the Native first. American, right? I guess this is, you know, the privilege of being the first means that I also have a responsibility. Um, I do what I call Indian 101, that all of the staff has to come to, including okay. front of house, box office, production, everybody, um, to help them understand indigenous culture, the space they're standing in, and most importantly, our audiences that we're hoping to welcome into the theater, and how do we welcome them, and understanding that theater is a white culture. Western American theater is a white culture. You know, the assumptions you're making of what's um, acceptable behavior in theater is completely different than what is normal behavior in so many cultures in this continent. Um, one mm-hmm. of the great things about the Thanksgiving play is that it um, spotlights so many things about theater that present to us as issues and, and actually say, well, do we really mean that? Mm-hmm. And um, I think we've all settled into an orthodoxy, let's say, of like, you can't play outside of your race and ethnicity, whatever, your look. Um, but of course, what that means is if there's if there aren't indigenous roles to play, indigenous indigenous actors are never able to do that act of representation. In your experience, just working working with actors and stuff, how how have people started to think about that? So that's interesting because actually casting is still very complicated. Yeah. Um, Red Face is being done regularly all over our country, um, on film and TV, on stages. There's so many non-Indigenous actors still playing Indigenous roles. And there's so many people calling themselves Indigenous that ha- cannot in any way prove they're Indigenous and have no actual connection to any Indigenous community playing Indigenous roles. Right. People say they understand <laughs> more and they're doing better, and yet there they are. Uh, all Red Face is being done constantly. Conversely, fascinatingly, um, when I, if you read the script of the Thanksgiving play, I put in the character description that people of color who can pass for white should be considered for roles. Right. And I was really proud of that. But when I get to New York, uh, we were told we can't put that in the casting breakdown. Well, you can't ask people to play someone else. I was right. like, wait. There are still white people on these stages in New York City right now playing Native. This was a few years ago. Playing Native. But you're saying I can't openly have non, you know, white people play white people if they look white to you? You know, and there's like, no, you absolutely can't. I'm not allowed to ask people if they're Native American when they're being cast. Um, And so we have to do this whole kind of song and dance of I kind of try to 
figure it out by chit-chat and seeing, like, and then people get all mad <laughs> because we cast a <laughs> not someone that turns out they weren't Native or they didn't have a connection to the community. And it's just, it's this constant, like, thing, which is all part of, you know, what we're dealing with in Thanksgiving play. Well, yeah, I mean, one way of interpreting the show is that it's about the sort of the most far-reaching implications of meaning well. It seems to me that the people that are going to, that come to Broadway shows are, like, these same well-meaning people. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. What has been the response to 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 that? This is kind of you. What you know? How do you feel oh, about that? Oh, it's absolutely you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, like I do not hide that. Um, you know, uh, it, yeah, I, I don't hide the fact that this is about you know white liberal folks, which are tend to be theater goers, not all. I mean, I think the thing that I keep saying, but it's been very important to me in this play was that first, it's fun. And that you get to have a good time in the theater. And second, it's, I would say that's the sugar, and then there's the medicine. And so it's satire. It's a comedy within a satire. So the satire is the medicine, and you have to keep taking it through it. (laughs) And, you know, honestly, some people opt out. We've had a couple, you know, a couple people walk out. Really? And, like, once it got too far in... Um, they were just like, no, this is this is too much. And um, I can imagine one, at least one scene where that might yeah, happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, the vast majority of audiences are really raucously responsive mm-hmm. and really having a fun time. Last week, we had audience members talking to the stage, like talking back, and I mean, it just got wild. They they added like six, seven, eight minutes to the show. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, it was crazy. That's a lot of talking. It was a lot of talking and <laughs> chatting and clapping and, you know, responding, and like, we love that. Something that I've wondered, um, because I think most people who live on Manhattan uh, think about the Lenape only, usually... Before a show or something, and then someone <laughs> comes out and does a land acknowledgement and say, "We, this is the land of the Lenape people," and they say like this thing. Um, I'm, like, does that practice have? Is that practice? How do you feel about that practice? Yeah, I mean, land acknowledgement. Honestly, I know in some places we're getting a little tired of it, but I will say it's definitely. Um, it, it it's not everywhere. <laughs> and it's not all facets of the society. So I'd say, you know, for me, until everybody in the United States of America if you can name the indigenous land they're standing on, we need to keep doing it. Good. Yeah. But, you know, I always say, too, though, land acknowledgement is a step. So it's the first step mm-hmm. of many steps toward reparation, right? Or the many steps of reparation. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can't name who you're supposed to be paying reparation to, you obviously can't even begin. So you have to at least know who reparations are owed to um, for the land that you're on. Who are you paying rent to? You know, you need to know that. And then you need to start paying the rent. Thank you so much for doing this. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so much fun. The New Yorker's Vincent Cunningham speaking with playwright Larissa Fasthorse. The Thanksgiving play is in previews for its Broadway run, and it opens next week. I'm David Remnick. That's our program for today. Thanks so much, and see you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Frida Green, 
Adam Howard, Kalalia, Avery Keatley, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputubwele, with guidance from Emily Botine and assistance from Harrison Keithline, Michael May, David Gable, Amy Pearl, Meher Bhatia, and Alejandra Deshay. And special thanks this week to Alex Barron. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. 